0: Welcome to the third episode of Quarantine Market Podcast, where some academics come together to talk about our historical moment in the self-isolating comfort of our pyjamas.
1: It's difficult. I don't have pyjamas, but I'm reluctant to wear outdoor gear. So it's just football jerseys for me at the moment.
0: So our second guest is uh, Stephen Dunn. Alan, would you like to introduce Stephen a little bit?
2: Yes, uh, Stephen Dunn lectures at the University of Edinburgh. He doesn't own any pyjamas. He was one of the founders of the journal Ephemera, which is a uh, free-to-access journal or open-access journal um, on critical perspectives in organisation and is an excellent journal. His work tends to straddle across lots of different areas, uh, including corporate social responsibility, uh, but also lots of theoretical issues. He seems particularly interested in rhetoric, but in any case, today we're going to be addressing the key word of idleness, which is clearly a relevant term for many of us who are stuck in quarantine. So hello, Stephen. Good morning. Uh, Stephen, to begin with, uh, the one mistake that we made in the last episode, which is quite an oversight, is that when we were talking about generation, the obvious starting point should have been Raymond Williams' keywords but but this time we're going to get this right and (laughs) idleness though not a discreet entry in keywords by Williams he does refer to it a few times so what does he tell us
1: about idleness thanks for having me on I just want to correct I was not one of the founding members of ephemera but I was there during the early days Uh, so just to I would love to take the credit for being one of the founding members but alas that goes to greater people than me as for Williams, yeah, it's it's a really nice way into idleness. It's a really nice way into lots of things, Williams' is a great book on keywords. When I was preparing for today's chat, I was looking for a few related words. So not just idleness, but also leisure, uh, luxury, and busyness. And it's interesting looking through Williams as well as looking through some sort of etymological things there's a few things that really stand out with the terms themselves, but also when you compare and contrast, I mean, we tend to think of idleness, leisure and luxury as more or less in the same ballpark with busyness, the opposite, but actually it's, it's not quite like that. So just a few things that I kind of recognize, idleness tends to be associated with shortcomings, vices. So we've got everything from laziness uselessness, uh, slothfulness. And we also can very clearly see the connection with sinfulness uh, along all this. So idleness in Williams, as well as through etymological works, it tends to bring with it negative connotations. It tends to be something problematic, a character defect. And so it's then, of course, no coincidence how when Bertrand Russell writes his famous work in Praise of Idleness... He's pushing back against that exactly that association of idleness with wastefulness with sinfulness, like idleness as a as a negative character trait. <clears throat> and Bertrand Russell is trying to redeem aspects of that, or at least to to write about how idleness could actually be a way towards character development, towards human flourishing. And so idleness becomes in 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 Russell the potential for self-improvement rather than a a denigration of a character. I think as well, when we look at idleness today, we can see the sinfulness aspect uh, maintained. Think, for example, of discussions of welfare scroungers or unemployment as a sort of sinfulness. The relegation of the working poor and the non-working poor, well, these are These are kind of deserved because of their character traits, because they're idle. So we do see that sinfulness notion, that character failing notion, uh, maintaining uh, despite Russell's uh, uh, famous work and despite uh, what other people have tried to do with idleness to redeem it. Leisure is different, right? So whereas idleness tends to be associated with sinfulness, leisure is much more described etymologically as a right so it's to do with license to do with permission it's to do with the separation that we have as individuals between our work lives and our free time so leisure is something that we are entitled to leisure is something certainly not as pejorative as idleness but it's it's much more licentious when you're allowed to have leisure but having idleness or being idle, that's more problematic. So already we, we see these two words close enough to one another. But I would tend to sort of point towards that there are very big differences, even in the nuance. Idleness, sinfulness, leisure, licentiousness. The third term, busyness, is etymologically, it goes back to a German term or a high German term. It's to do with eagerness. It's to do with pragmatism. So busyness tends to, for what words are worth at least, busyness tends to be a psychological manifestation. So we speak of someone being busy, being active, being pragmatic. So it names a sort of behavioral as well as dispositional phenomena. So it kind of avoids the moral judgments idleness the moral judgment is is very clear very immediate leisure the the moral judgment it is there but it takes a bit of work to get at it but it's it's permission potential busyness tends to be more about activity not towards any particular end whether good or bad it's simply someone who is blustering who is constantly on the move who 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 has a a disposition which causes them to be active rather than passive. So, I mean, it is, and I think this is one of the great things about Williams' stuff, is he brings attention to these nuances. We would tend to put all of these things as synonyms, but he's very clear to to point out that they they certainly are not synonymous when it comes to describing contemporary culture.
2: I I know that that you've been a keen reader of Norbert Elias' um, Civilization, so I wonder, what about the transition of powerful people, kings and others, from the battlefield into luxurious court settings? Was there a kind of valorization of idleness?
1: So this is where the, the leisure and the luxury aspect comes in. Elias is particularly more so his his work, the court society, more so than the civilizing process, which is no doubt his most famous work. But the court society has, um, amongst other things, a lengthy discussion of Thorstein Veblen and Thorstein Veblen's ideas of conspicuous leisure and conspicuous consumption. But Elias is very interested in, Okay, so we move from the battlefield into the, the courtly situation and his point of analysis is the Palace of Versailles. And he's trying to make sense of etiquette. The sense of courtesy comes from the court society. It comes from the situation around what, to the outsider, seemed like incredibly trivial activities and behaviours. So everything, as you can imagine, in the civilising process, there are these discussions of the 15 different knives and 15 different forks, each of which has a function. Because when you have so much free time... Elias would say that doesn't succumb to idleness. That becomes, and we can see the the Veblenite influence uh, on his work here, but that becomes a conspicuous issue. So you need to be able to demonstrate your class position within the court society. And you need to be able to demonstrate through incredibly subtle, but nevertheless highly regimented expressions. You need to know how to stand you need to know how to touch your face, you need to know how to speak, you need to know how to address people, you need to know what your place is. And that does not come naturally. To be socialized into the courtly setting or into the court society is to become habituated in seemingly trivial but absolutely crucial ways. And one of the fascinating unintended consequences of this are in the sphere of literature and poetry. So the ode to one who we admire, there's a reason that has to go into diarized form. There's a reason that has to become prose rather than overt interactional expression. It's because you're not allowed to go up to people in, in, in the way of the, the contemporary chivalrous male would you like to go for a walk? What's your phone number? That stuff is off limits. This has to be taken underground. And so the norms, the narrative norms of poetry and the prose of the time make sense in that context. This subtle reading of the unspoken, the nods of the head, the, the, the wrinkling of the brow. It makes sense that these things will be observed, given that that's how you live your life. So this remarkable attention to the unspoken, Elias says, is produced in the context of a courtly society where appearances have to be managed. But there can be little slippages between those appearances, little moments where you can give yourself away. And yeah, leisure To go right back to your question, leisure is the starting point for all that. And leisure is absolutely not idleness in the Elysian sense. These people are not rolling around in their own dirt. On the contrary, they are managing each and every aspect of their daily lives in accordance with an unspoken but very apparent ideal or set of ideals.
0: I'm also reminded here of the wonderful uh, Veblenian example where he says something to the effect of uh, cats uh, make uh, miserable pets for a properly high-class person because they can still kind of perform some sort of function, they can catch mice. <laughs> so the the properly high-class person will have a dog that's bred completely out of shape so it can absolutely no sense produce any actual work or do any, any tasks for the master.
1: Yeah, and it's, and it's funny both reading Elias and reading Veblen on this stuff because yeah, these, these are amusing, but they're also there's a sort of acute social commentary. Now I don't know whether this is something I'm misremembering or it's something I've just taught so often as an example. Yeah, that Veblen's idea of pets that, that becomes a, a, a sort of competition. So yeah, to get the most useful animal. So again, I don't know whether this is something I've made up or something that's in the text, but the the way that competition will go, it's towards you know, having a giraffe or a zebra or something completely out of place, completely useless, but very good at demonstrating that you can consume useless things, that your mind is on the the things not of this world, that you are of the leisure class. So you have to have people looking after the animals and then they need to be looked after. So if someone meets the norm, the, the, the fat dog, for example, then you can't just say, oh, great, we all have fat dogs now, aren't we? Great. No, no, you have to get a zebra or you have to get a frog with three eyes or, you know, this sort of thing that there is no there is no teleology to this stuff other than for us to try and outdo our, each other constantly. So the leisure class for, for Veblen as well as for Elias, that it's anything but lazy. All this stupid stuff takes on massive significance because that's how you compete, that is how you get ahead, that is how you establish your identity through these remarkably yeah. trivial things.
0: Here we get to a almost like Baudelardian territory, where following Maus, his perspective would be that the right word to talk about this is not leisure or even business, but actually this active destruction. Through this spectacle, the way you make social distinction is to really show how much ability you have to destroy value or destroy mm. wealth, and that becomes the actual ma- marker of distinction rather than anything productive. The productiveness is was always just an alibi.
1: Yeah, and this this notion of consumption as destruction. We can think of consumption in the sense of reproducing ourselves as labour, right, so that we can go back to work. So that's what consumption is. So that's a circularity. But obviously, if you see consumption as as destruction, and isn't it the the example of the potlatch just destroying objects, uh, that somehow subverts the circularity between production and consumption. And I think what seems to be very important for theorists of the consumer society rather than production society is to try and create a sort of separation between those spheres to treat consumption as something separate from production rather than than as an extension of it. And so, yeah, Mouse comes into that, Bataille comes into that, Baudrillard comes into that. But the person, I think, who keeps these concerns with the uselessness or the destructiveness, perhaps, of consumption. It's Pierre Bourdieu, right? So Pierre Bourdieu's capitals framework tries to bring the Veblenite sort of game out, over out-petting or out animaling your, your, your neighbours and tries to work out what the rules for that are, that it's not just conspicuous competition, that there are other things going on. So he's not anti-Veblenite, but for him, we can't just determine things economically. There is also cultural power plays and, and social power plays alongside those concerns with economic capital and how economic capital l- allows you to play uh, in the way that obviously cultural capital and social capital alone cannot. You need money to buy the zebra.
2: Stephen, I'm thinking of um, Colin Campbell reworking Max Weber's uh, spirit of, of capital He's arguing, if you remember, that the spirit of consumption is is quite distinct from the spirit of work, if I remember correctly. He grounds it in romantic practices of daydreaming, of introspection, that he's thinking of people like William Wordsworth, wandering lonely as a cloud, and so on, kind of getting lost in nature. So do do you think that's a good way to think about consumption, that consumption is more in this kind of daydreaming which is a type of idleness, we might say, as opposed to this kind of Protestant work ethic?
1: I think Campbell's very useful to bring into discussion at this point because, yeah, exactly as you said, one of the things he's interested in is not determining consumption practices more generally as an epiphenomenon of the productive sphere, that there are all sorts of social practices which can't just be traced back to uh, production. at the the level of, or relations at the level of production. So there's definitely that. And, you know, Weber, the the great theorist of of work, uh, of of vocation, of dedication to busyness in the, you know, remember he he opens with uh, Benjamin Franklin in his uh, Protestant work ethic. But see this moment of Campbell trying to explain poetic production as an aspect of consumption. I think there's an interesting juxtaposition to do between Elias's account of the emergence of particular forms of aesthetic practices and Campbell's account. Because for Elias, as we kind of discussed briefly, it's not that there's a sphere of rules, kind of rationality, an iron cage of bureaucracy on the one hand, and then this, this sphere of unregulated, almost chaotic free expression on the other hand. Elias is very clear to say that this this leisure time stuff, that has all sorts of rules also. And so they may not be as immediately apparent. I mean, they're not contractual in the way that a lot of our working rules are. But there's all sorts of norms, and these norms carry uh, massive importance in in our interactions and in our experiences. So for Elias, which, you know, I'm more familiar with than I am with Campbell, but, but for Elias... The explanation of aesthetic evolution changes in how we write and how we consume prose uh, as well as poetry. That's also to be brought back to social interactions. It's not the case that creative free expression is without norms, without context, without a tradition, without a canon.
2: Now, Marx, it seems didn't really have much of an appreciation of idleness. Mm -hmm. Uh, His his communist utopian imagined people hunting in the morning, fishing in the afternoon, rearing cattle in the evening, and criticizing after dinner. There's a constant kind of busyness, activity, production going on. (laughs) By contrast, then, when we think of Autonomia and others, this idea of the the right to reject work, and also I'm thinking of contemporary writers like John Holloway and how he valorizes the idea of what he calls the temporary autonomous zone. We're just going to a park and reading a book. Th- these types of activities to take us out of the rhythm and flow of capital and of mm-hmm. labor um, are, are, are the, the, the really interesting acts. So, so what, where is the left then uh, on this issue of idleness?
1: I mean, I think one of the really fascinating figures on all of this is, I believe his first name is Paul, but Lafargue. And I, I think he was... Some sort of in-law, or perhaps the nephew of Marx, and so with Lafargue is often associated this term of a sort of dandyist Marxism. Um, I remember a few years back going to a conference in London on the idea of communism, and uh, Terry Eagleton mentioned Lafargue uh, quite positively, uh, exactly in this tradition of saying, "Well, let's not," as Adorno says, "Let's not." turn the world into a a giant factory. This is Adorno's concern also is with maintaining space for aesthetic practices, not as entertainment, as as, as issues of character development, of of self-improvement, that we can't be seen as productive machines all the time. And so there is this tension between wanting to seize the means of production so that they can be put to different ends on the one hand versus slowing down. Okay, And it seems to me that these two sets of polemics or manifestos for societies which could be, like, it's not obvious how they're compatible with one another. So do we sort of prioritize the instance of refusal, of slowing down, of letting go, of being more austere? of doing with less, or are we trying to fill up the post-revolutionary society with lots of productive activities? But also, you know, he does say a critic in the evening, So it's not as if he's, his view of the fully rounded post-revolutionary subject is a barbarian or a a philistine, it's a cultured individual who's also a productive individual. And I think that the more sympathetic take on that is not that it's anti-dandyism or anti-idleness, it's that it's trying to unite parts of the productive subject that are separated by the current mode of production. So we often think of people who are either workers or thinkers. And I think Marx's view we are all capable of productive work and we are all capable of productive intellectual work. Is it a matter of trying to work out what the subject will be like and and what needs to be in place in order to allow that subject to emerge and to flourish? Or is it a case of, of, of rejecting and refusing an existing situation and then leaving it up for negotiation what will come after that? And it is difficult to sort of combine these two different ways of thinking about how productive activity isn't just labour, isn't just commodified labour. It seems to me that right now, that's a discussion that many households are having right now. Do we want to go back to the kind of getting on with things or would we rather slow down a bit?
2: You, you mentioned Adorno there, but, but this idea that he has that in the culture industry, that fundamentally it's more or less the same working on a factory production line as <laughs> listening to popular music, the, the logic of, of production is imminent to both of them, and mm. then overlaps with the idea of, uh, of cer- certain ways of thinking about biopolitics, that the subject has constantly been formed into the image of labor and into capital itself, What about those sort of pessimistic ideas that within capitalist ideology, it's very difficult to imagine a subject who was not in the image of capital?
1: I I think it's a really difficult question because I first tried to read Adorno as an undergraduate. It fed to my sense of me as an alienated, disaffected outsider. You know, Holden Caulfield from Catcher of the Rye. Where everyone's a faker except for me, but there is in Adorno and uh, Adorno and Horkheimer, it's not a totally nihilistic analysis of culture and of culture's relationship to economy. There is a sense in Adorno, and this is the tricky line Marxism and aesthetics tends to walk, is that once you start talking about things like the inherent value of aesthetics, the Kantian purposiveness without purpose, once you start talking about that, whether it be about music, poetry, or, or any uh, any cultural activities, once you start speaking of their value in and of themselves, you run the accusation of being a bourgeois or of being uh, conservative or of being not really with it, not really getting what's going on, not really understanding that all of this stuff has been industrialized and has been bureaucratically rationalized towards the the maximization of uh, surplus value extraction. But I, I do think that part of what's interesting as well as difficult about Adorno is trying to maintain this revolutionary sense of art apart from its blatant and ongoing commodification. So yes, culture for the most part, comes to us today as commodity. But that doesn't mean that the the exchange value wins the day and that the use value can be completely forgotten, that there is something about the working up of a a way of thinking uh, and a way of feeling in the aesthetic sense that tries to both recognise culture's denigration but without giving up on culture there is a sense that despite everything that's happened culture's still worth arguing for fighting for thinking about working on that's at least when I try to sort of speak back to my Holden Caulfield-esque reading of the culture industries I say no no it's not it's not just a diagnosis of alienation the diagnosis of alienation, which can go somewhere other than alienation. There is something to be thought about. Absolute commodification. That's why I think Adorno writes so much and so carefully about culture because it does matter. If he was just saying it's all shit, he wouldn't have written so much great work. <laughs> I guess is the point.
2: Would you want to put the artist into a special role between the idol and between? Labour.
1: We all have the capacity, the potential to be productive labourers and to be critics and to be artists. But it's the social conditions and frameworks and relations that will determine what we become. For all Elias' problems with Marxism, there is a sense that you have to trace these categories of artist, factory labourer, teacher, whatever it might be, back to the relations of production, back to the sociological interactions. That yes, of course, we can speak of talent. And of course, we can speak about endeavour. And of course, we can speak about application and graft and all these sorts of things. But neither Elias nor Marx are ever going to say, you know, the reason such and such is beautiful or the reason such and such is such a moving work is because its author was a genius. So its author had the time and space uh, as a result of certain social relations. So I think it's just very with sociology, you just it always makes sense to try and demystify things as tempting as it is to go into explanations from genius or from exceptionality, that that doesn't explain things. Sociology tries to sort of work out, okay, so what were the social relations that made this possible? So I wouldn't separate the thinking person from the productive person. We all have those capacities, but it's social relations that determine which of them come to fruition.
2: Let's consider the gender implications of all of this in the Prototypical Fordist family, there would be the man bounded to salaried labor and then the woman in the household doing social reproduction. But what of women in all of this? It seems that they're in an ambiguous situation. Historically, at least in the Fordist era, denied access to labor and then not properly recognized as social reproducers. Have they been defined, do you think historically, as a sort of idle subject?
1: We can think of the traditional role of the stay-at-home housewife as enabling capital to produce and reproduce, because if those things were not to happen, the the system would cease to function. So there is already in that a sort of reluctant or at least ambivalent recognition that the household is the traditional site of female labour The household plays a role, an important role, but it's an unwaged role. And so the wage needs to be sufficient to to maintain that sphere of reproduction. I think that, okay. so two things on why that remains a problematic view, even if it's somewhat instructive. So the first is in the wages for housework movement. um, What you see is the recognition of just how important that work is. So that's the first aspect is that this this naturalization of a sexualized division of labor has always been problematized um, both by progressive and more conservative political philosophical uh, traditions. I think we're seeing right now the importance of the claim that the work that women do uh, should be at least, if not waged, valued. Because All I see at the moment on my Twitter feed is men having breakdowns right now because they cannot cope with what their partners have been doing for years and years, namely looking after the kids, looking after the house. Again and again, I'm seeing guys recognizing that this stuff that's done in the house is not just at least as tough, it's much tougher then going to the office and sitting at a desk for a few hours and waxing lyrical about the division of labour between the sexes. So that's the, the first piece, is that I think this crisis is bringing to the foreground what many have kind of known in an abstract way, that this work keeps everything going, that this work, it's more important than most of the work that's done uh, in in wage labour. The second bit is that, and this comes a little bit from some research I've been doing with a few colleagues in in Denmark for the last few years on the four-day working week. So just very quickly, the four-day working week brings with it obviously all sorts of social, ecological, uh, economic repercussions. When we speak to people about what they do with that free time that they found. So with the organizations we've uh, researched, the, the same salary is paid, but more or less each organization, their workflow becomes much more efficient, right? So the bargain is you work harder on those four days in order to have your fifth day as a sort of recharge the batteries moment. And this is not something that we went looking for, but it's something that's very clear. Men and women differ significantly on how they conceive of that free day, okay? So for men, for the most part, the tendency is to say, that's me time. I'm going to go mountain biking, or I'm going to go to the gym, or I'm going to learn a language, or I'm going to learn an instrument. But I need that time in order to be able to go back to work fighting fit, right? Right? So there is this sort of individualized moment where men say, ah, four-day working week, I I work so hard, I deserve this time, I'm going to go for a big, long walk in the countryside. Women, it's very different. So women will speak invariably about the need to catch up on stuff in the house, the need to sort things out, the need to get on top of things. There isn't this sense of, for want of a better term, there isn't this sense of that's me time. There is this sense of okay, almost I'm able to reproduce the household. I'm able to sort of catch up on the the cooking. Like that's pretty worrying, right? That even when you have a progressive, organisational and you know political policy set on creating or on balancing the work life balance a bit more, the ways in which men and women respond to this definitely depressing sense that even now there is a gendered division of labor responsibility and reproductive labor responsibility. Men tend to see reproductive work as not theirs to do.
0: Sort of to bring this whole Thing a little bit closer to home as well, uh, I remember, Stephen, how you wrote in 2012 or published in 2012 on consumer narcissism. And of course, my stuff has been very closely aligned with your ideas as well, that uh, in culturally oriented consumer research, certain things seem to claim precedence. And the one thing, of course, is meaning, that all consumption is somehow a meaningful, uh, meaningful and typically a rather goal-directed activity. And the other other thing that uh, is almost central to all the research on communities of various types is that belonging is everywhere. There is almost mm-hmm. no sense of the idea of not belonging or idleness or uh, or detachment. I'd like to get your ideas on this. So is this is this also is this sort of a sign that culturally oriented consumer research is very much playing the same game of? expediting business and productivity in the sense that market-based uh, symbols have to be constantly recirculated and renegotiated. Because for me, the interesting paradox that comes out of this situation is that if you think of brand communities or subcultures of the consumption, for example, that are much based on products and reproducing and circulating the symbols of products, then isn't that sort of a false promise? You are promised belonging, But in effect, you get a pissing contest of who has the nicest toys. (laughs) So the more you enter into this sphere of consumption subculture, the more you paradoxically get distanced Mm -hmm. by every act of belonging that you perform for the group. Because every act of recognition through consumption as a maker of distinction is an individualistic act on principle, right? So you're trying to become more recognized. You're trying to become more liked, or you're trying to become more part of the group. So every moment of belonging turns into a moment of, uh, it, it circles back to push you further away as a sort of individualized project of consumption.
1: No, I, I I think I basically agree with your analysis. Like, I'm not sure there's such a thing as a brand community. Um, to, to I, Like, Yes, people want connection, and yes, people want to be understood and to be recognized for who they are. But the idea that buying things is the privileged route towards that, I just don't think it, it connects with anyone's experience other than people who write about brand communities. In some consumer research, there are these terms and traditions and concepts that have gathered a certain momentum, that momentum has been gathered within journals and within academic publications and within conferences. I don't really think most people find their community via brands or via shopping. I think that many careers (laughs) are based on the statement of the belief that this is the case, but I struggle to take brand communities as a helpful diagnosis of social relations. And I think that this is where psychoanalysis remains relevant to consumer research. My
0: perspective was exactly the same as uh, what you're bringing up right now, which is that there's something that's terribly missing in all of this research which would be the psychoanalytical approach if you follow psychoanalysis then of course a pure form of being or belonging in an ontological sense would be precisely to do away with distinction to do away with difference so that Mm. you would belong fully so Mm. when you look at consumer research we almost see like an apparatus a theoretical apparatus that is doing the, doing away with the very possibility of this view to ever manifest. So in in a sense, what has been constructed in all these ethnographic narratives of meaning is precisely what will not allow you to ever experience any belonging in an ontological sense.
1: Yeah, and I, and like, so there's two things uh, on that, and I agree. But the first thing is like, this this is often presented as a discovery, right? So... People use brands and products in in the process of identity formation, but they feel as if uh, it's not quite reflective of who they really are. Well, like, of course that's going to happen, because that's what psychoanalysis has always taught us, and what philosophy has always taught us. You're never going to find pure satisfaction that cannot be uh, ever compromised or mediated away. Though, of course... You feel as if your identity project is mismatched with your shopping practices. That's what identity is. It's the same as your friends. It's the same. <laughs> it's the same as where you live. It's the same as your job. So of course, cornflakes aren't going to allow you to a- a- achieve your identity. The other thing I'd say, though, like, and I, this is something I get from Alan quite a lot, is that it's important not to sort of, for us to kind of take what we can from psychoanalytic writings, but to be clear that it's not our capacity to speak about pathological consumption practices or when we're speaking about pathological consumption practices, we have to be clear that psychoanalysis is is treating people who are unwell. And there are qualifications to be made when you take the discussion with a therapist and apply some of those concepts to how people shop and how people make themselves up. Like, that's not, that's not a mere juxtaposition. I think it is important that when we're using psychoanalytic concepts that we're clear that it's helping us make sense. They're hermeneutic devices. It's not, we're not doing diagnosis. But I, I nevertheless think that psychoanalysis can be instructive, if only to let us know why identity projects never work Like, psychoanalysis, if it teaches us anything, is that people don't want to be happy.
0: I agree fully. Uh, And uh, I'm not even talking about pathology here. I was simply talking about belonging in the first place. We seem to have, at least within our fields, we seem to have such a proliferate literature that always seeking new ways how to talk to people and interview people about Mm. their belonging experience.
1: Yeah, yeah, and their truth. uh, To tell me what it's really like to feel misunderstood. So, well, I don't need interview material for that.
2: <laughs> one last question for me, Stephen, um, about idleness, which is to, to take it to the contemporary analysis of neoliberalism. And On the one hand, we have the sort of hyper-productivity of neoliberalism, which wants to see everything fundamentally as a type of opportunity to create value. So I'm, I'm thinking now, uh, our, our colleague Detlev Zwick had a wonderful mm. line, that you must not dwell where you dwell so this kind of hyperactivity of neoliberalism. And then on the other hand, juxtaposed with that is, uh, Zygmunt Bauman is very good at analysing this, the emergence of what he calls the, the subclass, the hatred of the poor. So Channel 4 had a show uh, a few years ago called Benefit Street, mm. looked at people who were living on social welfare and was just clearly there to cultivate contempt and hatred for mm. people who are benefiting from this, this, uh, the state. So this idea of, of the poor as, as a type of excremental category of sheer waste. Bauman's writing, I don't know if people have seen the, the, the final chapter of his book, Culture of Consumption. It's a very, very brilliant piece. But he writes mm-hmm. very evocative terms about just how vitriolic this contempt is. So my two questions is, on the one hand, the hyperactivity of the preferred subject of neoliberalism Versus this hatred of the so-called subclass.
1: No, it's, it's it's very interesting juxtaposition. I think so. Two things, and I'm gonna probably bring it back a bit to the Veblen and Elias stuff again because I think this is something that kind of historical sociological comparison can be helpful for. I think the idea today of the welfare scrounger or the 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 benefit street documentary, this kind of Poverty porn, as it's been called, where your job as the viewer is to consume a sense of difference between the deserving poor, the people who are depicted in the show, and the deserving privileged or the, the person who is not a scrounger. So there is this sense that, and I think that's, that goes right back to this sense of idleness as a sort of sin. And as a sin, uh, the, the repercussions are deserved, like you you had the chance to be productive, to be busy, to be active, you chose instead to become an alcoholic, and so therefore you deserve all the shit that's coming down the line to you. So there is this sort of sense in which we look at these shows as poverty porn, but also uh, the way in which the Victorians used to look at the poverty today as objects of disdain or pity, but certainly not as equal individuals. And it's really interesting because the Veblenite notion of conspicuous leisure is about how did work move from something that was seen as a failing to something that's seen as a virtue. So his work goes right back to the sense of the ancient Greek notion of a free person inevitably or invariably a free man who did not have to engage in productive activity. So he could go down to the agora, to the marketplace, and debate with other people. So that's what free people do. They're they're free from work, free from productive activity. And so it's the slaves, invariably, uh, that would have done the work in those contexts so that free people could have their minds on higher things. As Deblin's history moves forward, that becomes associated with religious figures. So the priests and the bishops and the monks will live in non-productive areas so that they can pray, so that they can be in touch with the divine, so that they can contemplate the infinite. But it starts to change, Veblen thinks, when we move from conspicuous leisure, which can be demonstrated, we can show people that we do not have to work that we can engage in the useless. But once you need to demonstrate that via objects, rather than by virtue of your, your right to idleness, your right to leisure, then it starts to become a challenge. If conspicuous consumption becomes the, the marker of your social position, rather than conspicuous leisure, well, you need to get those objects from somewhere. And with, without private wealth, you're going to have to work. So there is an interesting change in, in what Veblen says from work being seen as dirty, work itself, productive activity, being seen as a failing of the character to now, today, idleness being seen as a failing of the character. So there is, it's, it's interesting, and I think that's the kind of value of, of Veblen of Elias, but also, of course, of Bauman, it's, well, where do these ideas of the deserving and un- undeserving poor come from? And where does where do these ideas of the productive, virtuous, neoliberal subject as distinct from the unproductive, uh, vicious, outcast of contemporary societies, the, the welfare benefit, scrounger, as in, invariably is the term. So sin... and judgmentalism has a lot to has a lot to do with this I think this deserving and undeserving poor
0: so in terms of now we're all happily self-isolating here (laughs) we should probably talk about the distinctions between idleness or leisure and all types of labor activities that we as academics are still doing at our home like like one, one could say like right now as well in the Finnish news, there was a story about how people are going manic in their homes to demonstrate how much work they're putting in. Because mm. there's an idea that now that you cannot show it at the workplace, you have to somehow hyper-compensate, mm. or other- Otherwise, people are thinking that you're just sitting home alone like we are in our pajamas and doing nothing. So there is that sort of thing that might be going on right now in this present condition where people can't move around. So are we so embodied in the idea of this constant productivity that we have to now somehow desperately overcompensate for that? Or is there a possibility in this moment to find new ways of connecting with, if you will, some kind of healthy idleness or healthy leisure?
1: I think for people in the fortunate position, that we're in, one of the things that's obviously happening is that our time has become an issue for us in the way that under normal circumstances, it isn't such a deliberate issue. So if I think of, if if this were pre-pandemic situation, there is a set of habits, uh, rituals, routines, that I don't have to think about Okay, so I get up at a particular time, I go to work, I eat at a particular time, I come home, I sort of call a few people, maybe I go and exercise. But there is a sort of sense of a structure to the day that I don't need to plan. Okay, it's habituated, it's normalized. And I think that what everyone, part of the manicness that people are experiencing is the responsibility of having to manage your time of uh, not having your habits manage your time and no doubt that's a source of anxiety for many people because they do not know what to do and there is something clawing about staying in the house for how many hours I find in that my days are mostly uh, pretty hectic interactions with students over emails and over Skype and then it's seven or eight o'clock the day seems to take on a certain intensity and most of that is unconscious. You know, it's not as if I've sat down with the intent of sending 400 emails, but that seems to be what's happening. OK, so I think I my experience at this stage is now, OK, this is this is the long haul. This is a sort of this is what's going to be happening now. So it makes sense for me to be more deliberate, be more intentional about my time and of what I want to do with my time yes I'm still going to have to work and as you're saying Yoel I still need to show that I'm working so there is all this sort of meta work that we do the dressage where we sort of not only do the work but audit ourselves in such a way that it can be seen to be doing the work or to have done the work which is completely silly and hopefully that will go away. It seems to me that that sort of stuff, that self-reporting of your work rather than actually working, like that's, that's a large part of contemporary academic work and contemporary professional work that will hopefully go away. I think David Graeber's idea of a bullshit job, I don't think that the job we have is a bullshit job, but I do think that a lot of the tasks we're asked to perform within that work are complete nonsense and completely ridiculous. And what they do is they serve to sort of keep this self-surveilling bureaucracy intact. One of the things I found remarkable, again, in a university setting, are the constant policy changes and the constant barrage, I would say, from university management right now, from senior management about the, the policies that they have for dealing with students. Like teachers, and professional services staff have been fielding this stuff, you know, for the last two weeks. This is the actual work, whereas the getting the policies straight and getting the announcements right. I know many senior managers believe that that's the important stuff, but it's not. That's the bullshit job stuff. The real job stuff uh, in our context is being in touch with the students, right? Letting them know what's happening. Bringing all our teaching online, all that sort of stuff. That's the that's the work. That's the productive activity. All the sort of policy meetings, blah blah blah. It's not it's not the business of the university. It's not what universities are for. It's not what <laughs> it's not what uh, Newman or Humboldt had in mind. I really hope those policies are good. Okay, so they There is that aspect. But again, think of the other jobs that matter to us right now. What work is seen as vital? Uh, Of course, health workers and care workers, delivery people, cleaners, construction workers, supermarket workers, right? Stuff that tends to be seen as low skilled or non skilled. We see the absolute reliance societies like ours have on work like that. It's not as if anyone is going, I really hope there's a PR campaign written with a really nice appeal, or I really hope a senior manager comes up with a very clear policy which outlines their five-step plan. Nobody wants that stuff. It doesn't matter. What matters are these care work and productive work. I'm not so sure teaching would make the cut, but i would certainly sure teaching would make the cut above management. So there is this whole layer of nonsense in large organizations and in societies like ours. And I think that what we are all experiencing is the recognition of the amount of bullshit jobs, as Graeber would say that there are, the recognition of the amount of our own time we waste with paperwork and with silly, trivial activities. So my sense is that if there's one small Positive that might come from this—I um, don't even—I I don't even have an imperative to give to. Let's just call it this situation. It will be that more deliberate sense of time as something that's valuable to all of us. Uh, time as something that, if we let busyness get the better of us, it's just paperwork and it's just silliness but perhaps with a bit more deliberate sense of what we can be doing with our days, weeks and months. I, I, not like me to be optimistic, but I am optimistic that this conversation around whether we want to go back to how things were, I think, that, I think there's a lot of great things that can come from that conversation.
2: I thought that was a wonderful um, exploration of idleness, Stephen. Thanks a lot, Stephen, for taking
1: this time. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it, guys. Thank you.